0: So, I gotta admit, overall I kind of enjoyed the Jake and Nog plot, a little bit more than the Kira and Mullabach plot. I feel like that's that's not the first time I've said that recently, too. It just seems to be a bit of a trend. And it's doubly weird because both plots are almost completely, I should say, are completely unconnected with each other. There's not even a thematic connection between the two plots. In fact, when I first saw this episode, when I went back and started re-watching DS9 after I finally went back to the show, my very first gut thought was, oh, they're going to they're gonna make it so that some of the land on the moon is the land they just purchased. And so now they'll have to sell it, and that'll be just like a nice little way to tie in. And nope, it's just completely unconnected land. Whatever. I'm going to talk about the Jake and Nog plot first, because I have less to say about it. First of all, Yammock sauce. I've always wondered exactly how Cardassians taste. I know that sounds kind of like a weird statement, but one thing that DS9 does that not a lot of other Star Trek does is emphasize different taste preferences for species. Now, that may sound like a simple, boring little thing, but as a world builder, I eat that kind of stuff up. It, I've often said that food is one of the few universal constants. It's one of the reasons why I use food in my analogies so much, because just about anyone can understand it. But it's also true when you're building a world. It's, also, it's, it's the first bit of advice I give anyone when it comes to world building. Think about the food think about the ingredients, think about uh, whether it's flora or fauna, think about how you cook it, think about how you season it, flavor it, think about why you cook it that way. You can learn so much and develop so much about a culture or a society or a species when you really sit down and think about something that is literally an everyday concern, right? So I've always wondered do the Cardassians, you know, based on their rigid, you know, their preference for heat and the, the, the tongue thing they got going on, maybe they literally prefer things that would be more caustic, literally caustic or literally acidic to other races. I don't know for certain. This is just speculation. It's just weird stuff that gets me thinking. Because there's another thing they mentioned in this episode that got me thinking. Self-sealing stem bolts, which is not the last time those will be mentioned. Now, what I find funny is O'Brien's never heard of them, apparently, which I'll get to that in just a second, and Jake and Nog are like, what are the hell are these things? I I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but the moment I heard that, I automatically had a perspective of what this kind of thing is. You put it in between two things of a specific type, You know, probably some kind of engineering project or computer-based thing that you need to, to adhese together, And you set it up, and then you hit the little thing, and shunk, and it automatically self-seals. So you don't need to get in there with a wrench and seal it in. I mean, very basic, right? But apparently no one's ever heard of these things. Uh, That brings me to my first two points. Sorry, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. First of all, one of the things I liked about Babylon 5, and I swear I'm not doing this to parallel the two shows, don't, don't. I'd, I mentioned over this... It, I'm sorry, i got to segue for just a second. Over when I was doing my Babylon 5 ruminations, there were several times when I'd mentioned something, and I like to use analogies or parallels to other works of fiction to make my point. So I'd say over in DSpace9, and then each time I felt con, con, compelled to say, by the way, I'm not saying, you know, the two were plagiarizing each other, or whatever. I don't want to go through that whole song and dance here, so whenever I reference Babylon 5, I'm just referencing another beat of, bit of fiction that I like, Okay. Okay, now, one of the things I liked over on Babylon 5 was, while it went a little bit too far sometimes, they didn't really have complete control over their own station. There was a lot of mundanity to the running of the station that I liked. It added a layer of believability on top of the science fiction. And this whole yamak sauce thing is actually that too, if you think about it. Because they're just now getting a shipment of yamak sauce that was probably ordered when it was still relevant which at this point in time would have been close to, oh gosh, like three or four months ago? You know, in-universe time. So, I I could actually look at the star dates, but point being, it has been a while... But at the same time, the idea of this backwater station getting a shipment a few months later actually does add a little layer of believability to things, doesn't it? I mean, granted, that's probably a little hard to perceive now because here in the modern era of real life, you know, shipping tends to take weeks on the on the high end and days on the low end. I mean, I literally uh, ordered something for the show yesterday, which will arrive here tomorrow. But. Again, Backwater Station, you know, middle of nowhere, ordering something that probably not a lot of people sell because the Cardassians aren't super popular. Remember, they've already had a war with the Federation and the the whole uh, demilitarized zone thing is already starting, you know, is beginning to become a problem, as we saw over on TNG. Or, you know what I mean. So I like the idea that this shipment is super delayed and no one just was like, hey, by the way, we don't need this anymore. And now they've got this problem to deal with. Getting back to the stem bolts, though, to to catch up to myself here. First of all, why does Nog not understand the concept of a barter trade system? That seems weird to me. In fact, if anything, it seems, well, kind of stupid. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, but it's funny to me that Jake, the human, who was raised by Starfleet, you know, by, by Federation personnel, is the person who looks at the concept and says, oh, well, why don't we just do a barter system? Whereas Nog is the one who says, no, I need currency. Now, see, here's the thing. Currency is fine. Currency has its value. That is, in fact, the entire point of currency. And I don't want to get too all economicsy on you guys, but all I'm going to say right now is that the value of currency is that it is a universally valued good. That's it. That is literally what currency is. It is something that everyone values, so you can trade it for goods equally. Otherwise, all of life would be this horrific and unending chain of bartering, which usually wouldn't work out and would leave a lot of goods rotting or a lot of services unheeded. Right? Make sense? You know, super, super summarized version here. So, Nog wanting the Latinum makes sense to me, what does not make sense to me is why he is so obstinate about this whole thing, where he's like, no, I don't want to trade for Stembolts, that's stupid. No, I don't want to trade for land, that's stupid. The only thing I can think, and I'm not necessarily calling the show out for this, but it, it just struck me as weird that Nog is the one who's against that, since the only way I can explain that away is that he's been raised by Rom, who is, well, Rom, our, and this is probably the more accurate answer, the writers still really didn't know what they were doing. And I hate to keep saying that, but it's going to be true through most of Season 1. They are still getting their footing on what they're doing and how they're doing, how the characters are going to go. And they've only just begun the world building that DS9 will be very well known for in, in its long term. So kind of makes sense that they're just kind of like, Here, go. Now that brings me to my next question, though. Why don't they tell O'Brien the truth? <clears throat> hey, Chief. Uh, we got a hold of a bunch of stem bolts through a trade deal, but we don't know what they're used for. Could you help us, please? I mean, that's not that hard. You might say, well, maybe Nog doesn't want to do that. Okay, I can accept that, but Jake, who I remind you, already is has a passably decent relationship with O'Brien. It's not like he can't just go and say, hey, can I just have a moment of your time? it certainly would be easier than basically arranging for him to come down there and check this out, specifically so they can kind of passively imply, you know, oh, what are these things? What are they for? Rather than, you know, just asking him outright. Also, and I hate to say this, but do they not have the internet on Deep Space Nine? I mean, I'm not saying... Obviously, they don't have the standard Starfleet computer database, right? I mean, that makes a degree of sense, because... You know, they're not really on a Federation station, and they don't really have Federation support. But do they not have the ability to, say, send out a data request to, oh, I don't know, any Federation ship, which might have that data core, and say, hey, what are self-sealing stem bolts? Anyways, (laughs) whatever, just moving on. And then, of course, and then I have a note here that just says, Nog doesn't value land? Question mark, question mark. I do love the little barter system trade thing they go through in this. It's just a nice, fun little bit. I also kind of like the fact that Cork himself picks up pretty quickly on what's going on. And, uh, I like, I like how he turns around and is like, y- you? You? Okay. <laughs> Let's trade. I also got the very strong impression that, the five bars or whatever the hell they were asking for really isn't that much money. But then again, unfortunately, they never, and I, this is speaking from hindsight, they never truly codify the value of the latinum. We have the, the slips or whatever, then we've got the bars, then we've got the nuggets, and I think there's actually another one, strips or something like that. Maybe that, maybe it's the first one. But anyways, we know that there's value going up. That's kind of it. We don't actually know the relative value of such things, so I, it would, it would have helped to have some idea of relative worth in order to be able to tell, oh, this is worth such and such, but I digress. So let's talk about the, the main plot, shall we? The Kira Nerisse plot. Now, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about Brian Keith because he's the guy who plays Mullabog. Now, I was reading an interview, uh, by one of the writers who was talking about how Mullabog came off completely wrong. And I was like, huh. So I did a little bit of an experiment. I listened to a few of his lines of dialogue. And then I closed my, I, you know, paused the episode, closed my eyes, and basically divorced myself from his voice. So in other words, all I was left with was the text on a page, so to speak. And when I did that, all of a sudden I was looking at someone who was basically a different character. So I can completely see what they mean by that. This is not the first, well, excuse me, this is not the last time that this will happen on DS9. In fact, this will happen several more times. The most infamous example being Gold Dukat, which I will discuss in length, don't worry. So, it's kind of interesting, because Brian Keith actually does a really good job of the role, but the problem is, he basically portrays a character with warmth and charisma. The intent, and again... I urge you to do what I did, just listen to the words divorced of his performance. The intent was for this to be a cantankerous, manipulative con man. To be a deceptive kind of individual who is altering and and, and trying to basically trick Kira into changing her perspectives and changing her mindset in order to better suit his own ends. He is a dirty, old, gnarled tree that has dug his roots in to the detriment of others. It's a very apt analogy. Now, there is a lot to be discussed there, and I will be discussing it, but it's worth noting that this guy is not the good guy. He was in every way written to be the adversary of this episode. And again, if you think about it, he really is. Anyways, a, a quick aside before we get into this. There's a nice little tidbit where, uh, Julian, you know, Julian and Cisco there, and Cisco's like, Yes, I need, you know, per your request, she is staying down there to see him for a couple, you know, for a couple of days. And Julian says, right. <clears throat> uh, Commander, I recommend it. <laughs> and that was, it was just a nice back and forth little thing. I, I enjoyed that. So, why is the bureaucrat so antsy? Hmm. At the beginning of the episode, he acts like, oh, God, the Federation has no idea what they're doing, especially when it comes to something on the lines of engineering, right? I mean, I'm sorry, Starfleet is certainly not the best medical, excuse me, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just making fun of over on TNG, where apparently they don't know how to cure anything or replicate anything or know what a splint is. But anyways, anyways, so you know, the idea of the bureaucrat being out of the loop on this is what I took away from this. Now, that may sound like a weird thing, but let me phrase this a little bit differently. Starfleet has this fairly widespread reputation for being really, really good at certain aspects of things, mostly technology-based, you know? In a, in a typical 4X game, Starfleet would be the, the organization that has great science, great you know infrastructure, engineering, and all that stuff, and really just kind of lackluster military and a, and a few other things to make... And, oh, and, and terrible economy to make up for that, right? So, I liked the idea that these Bajorans, or at least this Bajoran in particular, is so out of the loop on the Federation's reputation... Because Bajor has been so segregate from the greater galactic community, which I've talked about several times, that they're not even aware of this. They only know through vagaries, probably through the Cardassians, and through their own interactions with the Federation over the last three or so months, and whatever they happen to remember from, you know, 50 frickin' years ago. So, I love this idea that he's like, Oh God, are they going to be able to do this? What's, what's that light? What's that blinking? Because this is super important to him. And that is one of the things that's emphasized. This is very important to the Bajoran people. And that's a plot point that I want you to remember for later when we discuss it. So, anyways, then they go down, and then two people approach Kira. With pitchforks! Da, da, da! I actually had this, this verbal reaction when I saw that. I was like, oh no! Not pitchforks! <laughs> uh, so, there's a little bit of, there's an old saying. I don't know how true it is. It's just an old saying that I've heard before. The saying is that the older you get, the harder it gets to change. Now, on a base level, that's probably true. You know, the idea that the, the older you become, especially if you're, you're basically aging in the same way you have been, so in other words, your overall mentality or philosophy or life perspective or whatever doesn't change, the more, well, rooted you get in that mindset, the deeper your roots go. And then it becomes more and more difficult to change or shift or uproot or whatever, right? I mean, keep going to the tree metaphor, but it works, right? What I see here is an old man who is absolutely refusing to even accept the possibility that he has to change. To accept the concept as a base point. And that kind of leads me back to the episode title, Progress. Now, I'm pretty sure this wasn't actually intended by the writers, because, again, the writers were still kind of taking whatever they could at this point in time. I will say, by the way, this is a fairly uniquely DS9 episode. Uh, this could have worked on TNG, but nowhere near as well. Uh, this, is, this is an episode that kind of uses some of the establishment that DS9's setting affords it, to good effect, but I digress. What I see here... is a man who refuses to think. And I think if we were to crucible it down, to bear it all the way down to the core problem, that's the core issue right there. That Mullabach does not want to entertain the concept of hard work in terms of thought process. Hard work, most people usually inter that to mean, you know, phys- strong physical labor or whatever, which certainly he's in favor of. But a lot of people don't understand, or at least don't seem to realize, that that applies mentally as well. It's easy to look at a situation and say, No, nope, to not really think about it, to not consider the variables, to not ponder the viewpoints, to not conceive of consequences. I am swear I'm not trying to illiterate here. It's just, <laughs> it's just going kind to of work out the way. It, you know, it, it's, it, that is difficult to do, legitimately. It is hard work to try and apply thought and reason fully and fleshed out to every scenario. But, by contrast, it is much, much easier to say, if you take me away, you kill me. Because that's just, that's just a line all of a sudden. Skunk! Don't have to think about it anymore. Don't have to consider any of the variables. Don't have to consider the consequences. Kira tries several times to actually convince Mullabach of her perspective, of why. And that's important, too. I want you to remember the why part of that equation. Okay, we're going to get back to that. She tries several times to let him understand what's going on, what the purpose is. And he just keeps manipulating and deceiving her into thinking that he's the good guy. But he's not. He is the adversary of this episode. Not just because he is this obstacle for her to overcome, but because he is the mindset Bejor must fight against. We've actually already seen this in Deep Space Nine, as far as the second episode even. You know, outsiders equal bad, right? I talked about that in, I think that was past prologue, right? Outsiders equal bad. No, no thought. No need to think about it. No need to really analyze the situation. They're not from here, they're bad guys. Bam! This is the progress that Bejor needs. And then we add reality to the mix. And this is something I, th- I mentioned earlier with the whole bureaucrat antsy thing, remember that? The dilemma here is actually surprisingly well-crafted. Too often fiction, especially Star Trek, and I've pointed this out many times over in Voyager, will... Have a Well, okay, let me take a step back here. Uh, Forgive me for talking about this concept yet again. I'm sure some of you have heard this. But again, I know a lot of people are watching me for the first time here. So, when you have a significant amount of tools available to your heroes, constructing a believable dilemma for them to overcome is more difficult than it sounds. There's too many instances where, well, why don't they just beam this? Well, why don't they just scan this? Well, why don't they just do this? In fact, I've already done my TNG stuff for this month. So, let me just say that there's an episode, uh, Too Short a Season, which will be coming out sometime this month, where I discuss that exact problem, where there's just too many pro- ways they could have gotten around the dilemma with the tech they had at hand. So, it's not like I don't sympathize that it's difficult to craft that kind of a dilemma. I give that preface because I want people to understand how interesting this dilemma is. Because there is a third option here. Bajor needs power. No, I don't mean, like, political power. I mean energy. They need literal electric generation in order to be able to power their cities and their structures. And they need it now. And that's the dilemma part. Because this is a world that, I remind you, is still barely recovering. People are running around like crazy, trying to statecraft, trying to infrastructure craft, trying to culture craft, trying to religious craft. There are people on Bajor. And this has been a co- concurrent theme and will continue to be, for the entire rest of the first season and some of the second, how Bajor is just a, a hive nest of, of people trying to do what they can to recover from the occupation. Now, they never say this outright in the episode, so this might not be a true urgency, but the implication is clear that they don't need this power in a year. They need this power now. They have people who are suffering, who don't have, ener- who don't have heat in their houses, who don't have cooking capacities beyond simple fires in their houses, and all the other things that electricity provides. I mean, I don't really need to explain this to you. Literally, no matter what you're listening to me, on right now, you're using electricity. It's impossible to hear me otherwise. So you understand the value and I'm just an entertainer. Imagine how hard it would be to function as a society, especially a modern society with insufficient power, with constant brownouts. And I, you know what? I've actually lived in places like that in my life and I imagine some of you have too. My point being that's the dilemma yeah, we could take this third option, but it's going to take a year for for us to actually get some power out of it. They also don't state this outright, but it's implied they'll also get less power from it. You know, like a trickle increase rather than turning on the juice, basically. And they need that power. So they can't just take the third option and let this guy keep his little farm. They have to get him the hell out of Dodge. And they don't want to kill him. And I like that, by the way. It would be really easy for the Bajorans, who I remind you are, and again, this is not an insult, but are a fairly violent people, you know, by consequence of what they've been through, and more than willing to kill as a consequence of what they've been through. You know, it would be fairly easy for them to just say, kill him and be done with it. But no one even entertains that option. No one does, not even the bureaucrat. Everyone's just like, we're going to deal with this and it's going to be done. Even the Bajoran security officer who shoots Molobok does so with a phaser set on stun. Because why would they kill their own people? Right? This brings me to my next point. Is the parallel that Molobok pr- uh, portrays between himself and the Bajoran resistance fair? Now, I'm going to give my own thoughts on this, of course. That's kind of what I'm paid to do. But I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on this as well. As always, I read all these comments, and I love hearing your guys' thoughts uh, on these Monday and Tuesday ruminations. So please, let me know, before I go into any depth, do you think his intended parallel between himself and the Bajoran resistance is a fair one? And to add to that, remember that in so doing, he is comparing her to the Cardassians. Do you think that is a fair comparison? Now, I said that later. I'm kind of hoping some of you paused and then went ahead and gave your thoughts. Because, honestly, it's one of those things where, of course she's not like the Cardassians. She's nothing like the Cardassians. That's ridiculous. Who would possibly think that? But the comparison of him to the Bajorans, eh, That's what a con man does, by the way. A con man goes out of their way to gain confidence in order to change your perspective on something. Usually to swindle you. And that is what he's doing in this episode. He portrays himself as the noble underdog. And Kira eats it up. Of course she does. How could she not? This is arguably our second real Kira episode after uh, Battle Lines, which I talked about back then. This is the reality of kira Narice and her trying to find her new place in this strange undiscovered country that she knows not of she knows the old world she knows how to fight and dig and crawl and survive she doesn't know how to be a major she doesn't know how to run a station she's still figuring all this crap out So it's so logical to me. I've heard some people complain about this in, in discussions in real life. I've heard people complain that Kira goes a little bit too into his party line, basically. That she is just a little bit too malleable. But for me, I think that's completely believable. This is just so natural to her, still. Now, the Kira from a year or two from now, yeah, no, she would never do that. But this Kira, the one who is, I hate to keep saying this, three or four months out of the occupation... She just kind of slips into old habits. Kind of automatically defies her duties and responsibilities. Her commanding officer. Because she just doesn't know how to deal with this. And it is so appropriate to me that it is Sisko who brings the hammer down like a friend would. It's a nice touch. It is the beginning of what will eventually be a very long and awesome friendship between Sisko and Kira. Because he does. He just smashes the hammer right down. But he, does it, he doesn't do it to be mean or cruel. He flat out says, you're used to being... The, I, I didn't write it down word for word, did I? No, I didn't. Y- you're used to being the underdog. Now you're on the other side. And it's pretty uncomfortable, isn't it? But he doesn't say it unkindly. One of the things I love about Cisco's approach to diplomacy is he has this sort of tolerance that borders on insane. I mean, he can rant and rage, and we will see Avery Brooks put in such a performance, which I personally enjoy. I know it's not for everyone. I mean, we've talked about that before. I've, I've seen commenters comment on Avery Brooks's bah! performance that he does sometimes. But when he is being calm and patient, nah. People try to insult him, people try to to rant at him, people try to push back at him. He just says, okay. And he is just completely blasé in response. Just completely rolls with the punches. It's, in a way, a similar perspective, yet a... I'm saying this wrong. It's a similar goal, but a different perspective to Picard. And, and I don't mean to compare the two like that, because Lord knows they keep trying to force the two captains apart, and you know they did that in the Q episode, especially. But Picard is the person who will always maintain the professional calm. Basically, I don't know—I don't have a better way to put this. Picard would be a great politician, and I don't mean like you know the insult. I mean like an actually good politician, like the kind of person who can get stuff done. He knows how to talk circles around people. In other words, Picard is the one who pushes other people around verbally. There's a reason he's known for having the Picard speech. Sisko, he's the one who doesn't get pushed around. And you can see the difference in the dynamic there. Because other people try to talk around him, he just rolls with it. And he does this several times in this episode. It's just nice to see. I just wanted to comment on that. Anyways, anyways. So... I actually don't need my notes anymore. I'm kind of, I'm kind of at, my, at my conclusion point here, because Kira has to understand the value of why. And I think he she really starts to towards the end of this episode. I really wish the episode had addressed the why in particular, because the greatest possible argument against his con is the flat truth, which is usually how that works. Most cons fail in the face of hard reality. The Cardassians came and abused and tortured and raped and pillaged and did all sorts of horrible stuff because they wanted it, because the Cardassian Union found an underdeveloped planet and decided to exploit it. Some came, and, and we'll talk much, much more throughout this series about the crimes of the union, of, of the Cardassian Union. Now, if the Cardassians were trying to kick him off here, to tap this moon, to gain this power, it would be for Cardassian ends. It would involve Cardassian perspective. It would be because this is ours and screw you. That's not why Kira is here, and that's not why the Bajorans are here. This is not trying to power some labor camp, to rip some wealth out of the planet. This is not trying to power some war machine or some factory. This is not trying to keep a, a military base going. This is to power cities, houses, people. And thus you understand the value of why. Because it could be fairly argued, and I'm finally giving my own opinion on the earlier point, it could be fairly argued that the, that what Kira is doing is what the Cardassians would do. And I agree but the reason why she's doing it is completely different. And it's also worth noting that the Cardassians would have showed up and said, evacuate. And they would have probably given him that one and only chance, and he would have fought back, and then they would have killed him and moved on. Kira spends the entire episode, which I think is like two or three days, I I believe they say it in the episode, trying to patiently, carefully change this guy's mind, diplomatically reaching out to him, soul-searching her own self in this one through repeated and patient attempts at diplomacy by multiple people, for multiple reasons, they try to convince this man of the error of his ways, so to speak. They fail. Then she uses force. And again, that is why she is not truly like the Cardassians. And I feel that this is the solution she comes to in her thoughts. That this is the, the, the totality of it. Notice she even bothered to wait until they put that last one. Last one. We're almost done. Right? She waited until that last one was finished as a final courtesy, as a respect, before she then was finally pushed to use force. My only regret is they never really follow this up. It just ends and he says, oh, I've lost. I'm dead. And then they beam out the end. And again, this never comes up again. It's a bit of a shame. I did enjoy this episode. I enjoyed this insight into Kira Norris and her the beginning of her character arc. It is nice to see some of these character arcs starting to come to fruition as they flourish throughout this series. So, I hope you've enjoyed me talking about this, and I will see you guys next time.